looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I am your host, Al Moriello, and this is your home for the most objective 49ers discussion and hopefully the most entertaining 49ers plus some additional content discussion that you may be listening to this week. We have a great show. We're going to talk about the 49ers and OTAs, Nick Bosa's upcoming contract extension, and it will happen before the season starts. We're going to talk about some notes from 49ers assistant coaches about their players, including QB coach Brian Greasy, offensive line coach Chris Forrester, and defensive line coach Chris Kosurek. Then we're going to talk some pro football focus rankings of running backs, tackles, linebackers, cornerbacks, wide receiver combos to see where 49er players fall in those rankings and in our plus section we're going to start off with the nba finals two games in the books miami and denver splitting the first two games one apiece we're going to talk about new movies little mermaid how it's done its second weekend and spider-man across the spider-verse had a huge opening weekend we're going to stick with spider-man and talk about the death of a major character in the most recent amazing spider-man comic book issue And then silent auctions, why they're stupid and what we can do better. But like always, it starts with the Niners. So let's jump right in. Let's talk Niners. All right. And one of the newer announcements that the 49ers made a few days ago, they are canceling their final week of OTAs, which was next week. It was supposed to run June 13th through June 15th, and instead they've moved up their mandatory minicamp to this week. So tomorrow, Tuesday the 6th, and Wednesday, June 7th. Usually, so that's happened before in previous years, the Niners canceling the third week of OTAs, moving up the mandatory minicamp. It's usually a three-day minicamp, but the 49ers in the past couple years have canceled that third day to have a family day with players and family members before breaking 40-ish plus days before training camp officially starts. And just speaks to culture, right? Like, you know, as important as these OTAs are, as important as this mini camp is and practice, building the team, the culture, the right way is almost equally as important, right? Word of mouth. A lot of players are friends. They talk about a place to come that treats its players right and is winning on the field. It is a great combination. Not to say that the 49ers are a unicorn organization that other organizations don't treat their players just as well. I'm sure the Eagles and the Chiefs and the Bills, maybe not the Bengals, they're notoriously cheap. The Cowboys, I mean, they're... There are teams out there that obviously, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's probably a dozen more that I'm forgetting to name, but it it does matter, and it goes a long way towards players, you know, signing with the team, signing extensions with the 49ers. They do like to sign extensions a year early for young players to try to get them on a little bit of a discount, and you know, not to say that this has a large role to play in teams, in players maybe signing early or taking in some aspects less money. Maybe Sam Darnold is one of those players to sign with San Francisco. But what the heck, it certainly doesn't hurt. Now, what else doesn't hurt is having Nick Bosa on your defensive line. And I read an article that said the 49ers have no choice in terms of re-signing him. Well, no kidding. What do you mean, no choice? Of course they're going to re-sign him. If not, they're going to slap him with a franchise tag. But they will re-sign him, much like like they've done other star players. It will happen in July and August, or August. Nick Bosa will not step on the field for a regular season game this year unless he has a new contract. I think we can all agree with that. Makes sense for the player. And I guess in some ways it makes sense for the team also. What the ESPN mentioned in terms of no choice is no choice, but to make him the highest paid defensive player in the league. 
Let's go over the stats. Bosa has 43 sacks since entering the league in 2019. That's four seasons. He's averaging nearly 11 sacks per year. And this includes Bosa missing 14 games in 2020, his second year, tearing his ACL on the MetLife Stadium turf in New Jersey. That sack number 43, there are only five players ahead of him in the league. TJ Watt of the Steelers, Miles Garrett of the Browns, Aaron Donald of the Rams, Cam Jordan of the Saints, and Matt Judon, I believe, of the Patriots. Um, Watt, Garrett, and Donald all got their extensions. We're going to go over those numbers momentarily, but what are the accolades that Bosa racked up? Rookie of the Year in 2019, Defensive Player of the Year Last year, he's been to three Pro Bowls, one first-team All-Pro last year. And I'm surprised in 2021 he wasn't a first-team All-Pro. He had 15 and a half sacks. Now, all this combined, will he be making $30 million or more per year, average annual value? Probably. Is he worth it? Absolutely. Do the 49ers have every leverage, any leverage? Not really, other than the franchise tag. They have no leverage. They know how important Bosa is to not only the defense, the defensive line, but what they want to do schematically. Yes, they've brought in Charvarius Ward at cornerback, but the philosophy was, you know, if you can get enough pressure with your front four, not that the secondary doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter as much if you don't have a shutdown corner. But I think San Francisco realized, hey, if we can afford it, why not have the best of all worlds? Let's get... A stud D end, a stud D tackle in Javon Hargrave, two great linebackers in Warner and Greenlaw. Let's get a shutdown corner in Charvarius Ward, an all pro safety in Talanoa Hufunga, and a solid safety in Gibson and the heir apparent in Jair Brown. Now, where is Bosa going to come in terms of his contract? I'm not going to guess that in terms of years or dollars because the total amount, right, is always. Not the total amount that players are going to see. Sometimes there's a couple dummy years, void years added on to the back of the contract to help spread the salary cap hit out a bit more evenly or a bit more that the team can digest financially. And then, of course, like I've always said, it comes down to guaranteed money. But in terms of annual average annual value, Aaron Donald is at the top of the list, rightfully so, $31.7 million per year. TJ Watt of the Steelers, $28 million a year. Nick's brother, Joey Bosa of the Chargers, $27 million a year. Miles Garrett of the Browns, $25 million a year. And then there are three players tied for fifth at $23.5 million a year. Max Crosby, the end of the Raiders. Khalil Mack, the end of the Chargers. And Jeffrey Simmons, defensive tackle. Of the Titans. Just want to keep it here with the Chargers for a second. Obviously, they're on a rookie contract with Justin Herbert. The, you know, you're paying Joey Bosa $27 million a year. You're paying Khalil Mack $23.5. And, and that's not their salary cap hit. We're just going average annual values. You've got a, a big extension for receiver Mike Williams and Keenan Allen. And Herbert, Justin Herbert's going to be coming up. This is why, you know, if they extend Bosa, I still think there's going to be money there for Ayuk. I really do think there's going to be money left for Brandon Ayuk. It depends on how, if he has a huge year this year, if he goes for 14, 1500 yards, a dozen or more touchdowns, it's going to drive the price up. And they'll certainly have to redo his $14 million guaranteed contract next season. But you're looking at a team in the Chargers. And they've been wallowing in mediocrity. Yes, they made the playoffs. Yes, they blew a, what, 28-3 to or whatever it was lead at the Jaguars in the wildcard round. But you're paying two defensive players $23 million plus a year and two receivers probably in the 18 to $20-plus million a year range also. I have faith that the Niners can fit Ayuk in. Now, let's move from uh, contracts to coaches. And some notes from 49er assistant coaches on some players. They were available to the media um, during the last uh, OTA session that was open to the media. Let's start with quarterback, because that's at everyone's favorite and sexiest position on the field. And former quarterback, now quarterback coach Brian Greasy. Let's start with what he had to say about Brock Purdy. So, quote, Brock's got a lot of work to do. 
He had an unbelievable year. I think that Brock has an even demeanor and he's played a lot of football. So he's been in some of those situations. He had to deal with some of those peaks and valleys. And I think he had an emotional maturity about him. So this isn't what we call like damn damning praise or anything like that. I think he's careful. He, he was a quarterback played at a pretty high level. I think he did play for an AFC championship when he was with the Broncos I think he understands you have to be very measured when it comes to what you're saying to the media. (laughs) And I know it's, you know, I know I'm picking on the media in in a bunch of podcasts, but it's true because they'll run with a phrase. Even this Brock's got a lot of work to do. I'm sure I'm surprised it hasn't been plastered uh, as headlines on certain websites saying, you know, Brian Greasy doesn't like Brock Purdy. He does have a lot of work to do. He played in 10 games, you know, this season, uh, He is not a finished product. He's coming off of an elbow injury. He did play with a lot of maturity. I mentioned last podcast how much of that playbook from Shanahan was scaled back because he is a rookie. There's a whole lot more um, talent and, and opportunity that I think can be unearthed with Brock Purdy. And I think Brian Greasy is taking the right approach to it. And uh, Greasy continued So Birdie has had an unbelievable start to his career. Now there's a lot of things that Brock can and needs to get better at for this team to go where we want to go. And Brock and I, we've had that conversation and he knows he's the first one to tell you. And that's normal too for a young player. So I'm excited to get him back, get him healthy and see how good he can be. I don't think it could be understated the impact that Brian Greasy had on, I guess, all four of the 49er quarterbacks, if you want to count um, Josh Johnson last year, but coming in, working with Trey. Trey was the presumptive starter going into the season, got hurt week two. Working with Jimmy then, and remember, last offseason, Jimmy wasn't even with the team. He was working on a side field because they didn't know what was going to happen with him and his contract situation. Then he wound up taking a team-friendly deal and, and starting a bunch of games. Then it was Brock's turn. You, if you want to say, you know, well, you know, Shanahan's system, you can plug any quarterback in. Well, then, you know, I give you exhibit A, CJ Beathard, exhibit B, Brian Hoyer, and exhibit C, Nick Mullins, who I still think Nick Mullins is the number two or number three quarterback is beyond adequate. And someone who came back from the uh, elbow surgery that Brock is rehabbing from. But the impact that a good quarterback coach can have, a calming influence, someone that's going to keep the personalities in check especially after the Lance injury, then the Jimmy injury. And now the quarterback room of Trey, Brock, and Darnold, and again, Brandon Allen too. It's a lot of the, it's a lot there to juggle, but it is a teaching X's and O positions. And I think it's great that you actually have a former quarterback this time around versus some of the QB coaches that they've had in the past. Just more obviously teaching from experience. So moving on to Trey Lance, what did Brian Greasy have to say? So, quote, to finally have an opportunity to go out and play last season and then get hurt so early, it's devastating. It really is. And I'm so proud of Trey because he did not let it. It it did get him down, but he didn't let it keep him down. And he came back and he was around the team. Obviously, he couldn't play on the field, but he impacted his team in a positive way. And you could feel it. I could feel it. I could feel it in our quarterback room. I know Brock could feel it. I know other guys on offense could feel it too. Important. Waiting that full year to play, getting the opportunity and getting hurt. Tough for any of us to put ourselves in that position. I'm sure nobody that's listening on that right now has ever been a professional athlete, but how much that had to crush Trey Lance. Now he is someone uh, of strong faith. I'm sure he, re- he leaned on that, his parents, his other family members and friends. And to be there, to want to be there and help out and continue to learn any way he can, you know, speaks volumes about him. There are quarterbacks out there. I mean, you know, Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers both were ones to say, hey, it's not my responsibility to teach any, any young quarterback on the roster. People have that attitude and that's understandable too, right? Like when you know someone's coming for your job and the writing was on the wall in many aspects for Trey, when he saw how Brock was performing, when he saw him stacking up win after win after win to still be there. I mean, he could have just, 
They have a quarterback coach. It's Brian Greasy. Lance could have just stepped away to rehab, but he didn't. And you have to give him a lot of credit for that. And Greasy continues on that thread about how important this is. Quote, that's not a given, especially at a quarterback position. You could slink away and just go lick your wounds and get healthy and come back next year. But that's not who Trey Lance is. And that's why I told him I was so proud of him for what he was able to accomplish off the field because he wasn't able to do it on the field. So I'm just happy that he's back, he's healthy, and he can go out there and see how good he can be. I totally agree with Brian Greasy. It's intan- It's an intangible. It's maturity. It's leadership. It, there are things that do not show up on the field, but they are things that teammates see. He may not be in the huddle with them, but he's in the locker room, he's on the bench, he's on the training field during the week, he's on the airplane, traveling to away games. Guys, it matters. This type of relationship, uh, maturity, continuity, this matters to players, especially from a position of leadership. And like it or not, if you're a quarterback in the NFL, you're a leader, especially when you are thrust into that starting position. And... The position that Trey Lance was drafted out of. I mean, obviously, everyone can say more was expected out of Lance, his first couple starts, then out of Purdy, given where they were drafted respectively. But I think they're lucky that both players feel like or seem like, because again, we aren't there. This is, you know, this is secondhand information that they have a bit of a maturity beyond their years. They're not Jamarcus Russell, <laughs> they're not Ryan Lee for Jeff George. They're players that are, are approaching this the right way, even though they all know, including Sam Darnold, there can only be one. There can only be one starter. And last but not least, Sam Darnold from Brian Greasy, quote, Sam has come in and he's been about the work. He's been through a lot in his career. I think everybody that knows football or watches football can see the skill set that Sam has. To me, it was about, can we give him the structure and the stability upon which he can see how good of a player he can be? And I think that our system, our offense is tailor suited to a quarterback coming in and finding their footing and getting stability. And so Sam has that opportunity now. Now we'll see what he does with that opportunity. And I think that was Sam Darnold's approach. I think Sam, in not so many words, said it in an earlier interview, you know, maybe in March or April, that he probably could have signed for more money somewhere else and maybe be given a more more probable chance to start. He was never going to be handed a starting job anywhere. At best, he could have stayed in Carolina and been a bridge quarterback um, for Bryce Young or maybe gone to Indianapolis and done that or Houston for C.J. Stroud. He came to San Francisco where he knew it was going to be a fight. Yes, you had Brock Purdy coming off surgery. You have Trey Lance coming off of an injury. You are the healthiest one. The minute he walked in the building in March, you know, once he signed in free agency, but it guarantees nothing. And it's not like he's making the vet minimum minimum. He's making what around $6 million or maybe a little bit more still good money if he doesn't play, but he wants to play anybody, any quarterback that signs, even Brandon Allen wants to play or at least, you know, preseason put something good on tape. Maybe to become a, a backup quarterback or a third back or a third string quarterback for another team, preferably the way the Niners go through all position players, including quarterback, I would love for him to be number four QB on the practice squad. But Greasy's words and I think Darnold's mindset align. Nothing's promised. Of course, nothing was promised to Darnold when he had an, a conversation with Greasy and Lynch and Shanahan. He wants an opportunity to compete. It's a meritocracy. May the best man win. I still think it's going to be Brock, <laughs> Brock Purdy. Um, but battling for the number two, uh, spot, uh, is important just given again, injuries and the 49ers go hand in hand, moving to the offensive line. Chris Forrester, um, basically said that the right side of the line is solidified barring something wildly unforeseen. So Colton McKivitz at right tackle and Spencer Buford at right guard, they are the starters on the right side of the line. What Forrester said about McKivitz specifically, quote, Colton, he's done a great job for us through the years. He's been here. He's always had to fill in short spells and has done a good job for us. Think back to 
Week 18, the essential win and your in-game in 2021, Niners at Rams, stepped in for Trent Williams and played a really good game. Back to Forrester. I think that knowing the job is his, coming into it, and it's his job to lose, kind of, I, 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 although there will be guys that are there to compete, Matt Pryor, Jalen Moore, you know, if it, it, he'll, they'll be there to compete if it doesn't work out. I think it is also going to help build his confidence. He is good for the position. Now, Forrester did go out and say he's probably not as good of a run blocker at this point in his career as Mike McGlinchey is. But I think McKivitz had the wake-up call. The 49ers released him at one point, and he went through waivers unclaimed, came back to the 49ers practice squad, and Forrester said that was a bit of a wake-up call for him because he was a drafted player out of West Virginia, started some for the 49ers, was released, not claimed, essentially meaning 31 other teams didn't want him, which was good for San Francisco, re-signing him to the practice squad, and then two years later being in position to start at right tackle. Now, last but not least, defensive lineman Chris Kuchurik on second-year pro Jake Drake Jackson, DN out of USC, who was inactive for the last six, six of the last eight games last year, and here was his quote. This is something that we all knew. So per the D-line coach, toward the end of last season when his strength level kind of went down and he got deactivated, I'm sure it was a humbling experience for him. He took it the right way, but the NFL is a humbling game. And if you haven't been humbled yet, you better be looking around the corner because it's coming sooner or later. He's been consistent with, with his approach and it's showing with what he's done with his body, not only the weight that he's gained, 13 pounds since last season, it's the good weight that he's gained. He's done a fantastic job while still being able to maintain the explosive nature and abilities that he has in his body from a speed aspect. It doesn't click for a lot of rookies. And I think, you know, what what Korserk was saying about, you know, a player like a Drake Jackson, even though he was a second round pick, was probably one of the always one of the best players on the field, high school, college, major college program. And you get into the NFL where everybody is either just as good as you, if not better, it is a slap in the face. How much more you have to prepare yourself, your body. It's not just game days. It's the week leading up to games. It's the weeks and months leading up to the season, doing all the right things. That's why a lot of professional athletes have um, professional chefs or nutritionists that help them, you know, Working out is great, but, you know, I think Coach Kursek said, you know, you could put 13 pounds of McDonald's on. He's like, which I did at one point. It's the good way. It's eating the right way, balancing out with strength training and cardio. And it seems like Drake Jackson is, a, it is in a much better spot. And it's not an indictment on Jackson why the 49ers signed, you know, top five, top seven uh, draft pick DN Cleland Farrell in the offseason, and it's certainly not an indictment why they brought in Austin Bryant, DN from the Lions, or brought back Kerry Hyder, or drafted Robert Beal from Georgia. They like to send players in waves, but you you just can't bank on one player having you know a ten plus sack season. It will be great if another DN outside of Bosa, assuming he stays healthy, has ten plus sacks. But if you can get you know five, you know say four and a half to six and a half or seven out of Jackson. Same out of Farrell. We'll see like what the combination of Bryant, Beal, and, and Hyder can do. That would just go a long way from, and Javon Hargreave on the inside, it'll be difficult, more difficult to double-team an Armstead or a Hargrave or a Bosa if you can get consistent pressure off that side. So great to see, again, the light bulb going off, and sometimes it takes that full year to understand what you need to do to be a pro. Now, uh, Korserik went on on Javon Hargrave. Quote, I think the last couple of years in Philly, he's really separated himself from a lot of the other interior players in the game, especially from a pass rush standpoint, from pressuring the quarterback to being able to win one-on-ones at a really, really high rate. There's only a couple of guys in the NFL that have won at a rate that he's won at. Super important, big fish, big ticket free agent, that the Niners signed this year. It was Charvarius Ward last year at cornerback. He should help the interior rush and by halo effect, help the defensive ends as well. Uh, great signing. It was something that Coach uh, Kosurek was hoping for, made a recommendation on. I think every D-line coach was making a recommendation 
to sign Hargrave if he was amenable. It worked out financially. And assuming everybody stays healthy, the Niners' D-line has gotten better than last year. And last but not least, the other Javon, Javon Kinlaw. Here's what Coach had to say about him. Quote, this is the first offseason since we've had Javon that he's been able to start the offseason healthy and actually stack days on top of each other. And he's been doing awesome and been able to stack one day on top of the next and really get himself, at this point in the in, of time in the offseason, more so ready to play than at, at any time in his career since he's been here. So it's all been really positive. Drafted in 2020, COVID year, played the most games in 2020, but then 2021 and 2022 only played 10 games, I think, total. ACL surgery in 2021. Recovery lasted into 2022. Like any athlete, they say it takes two years to come back. Someone that's this big, this heavy, this strong. Hopefully, the ACL procedure has cleaned up and cleared up any issue that Kinlaw has with his knee. And listen, if he has a phenomenal season, even as a second string D tackle, and he works his way to a um, lucrative second contract with another team, God bless him. Because again, adversity, surgery, the Niners bringing in someone to replace you in Javon Hargrave, and you working hard and showing that you have then become the player that had all the promise coming out of NC State, that would be good for him. Now, I think it would be good for the Niners if he has an okay or really good season, but he stays as a rotational piece for San Francisco if he can stay healthy and he works on his technique a bit. He, he could be a big help and a big force, but one day at a time. So lastly, to wrap up the section, let's discuss Pro Football Focus's rankings for some 49ers at different positions. So top NFC running backs, Christian McCaffrey leading the list. Then Saquon Barkley, Aaron Jones, Tony Pollard, and Dalvin Cook. I don't want to say beyond McCaffrey and Barkley, the last three are underwhelming. Aaron Jones has been splitting a lot of time with A.J. Dillon in Green Bay. Tony Pollard is coming off of a broken ankle. Hopefully he heals fully. There's no more Ezekiel Elliott in Dallas, which means Pollard may get uh, a heavier workload. How does he respond to that? And Dalvin Cook may be gone in Minnesota. There's some talk that he may be taking a pay cut, but uh, Madison, his backup, was given a nice extension, and he is the presumptive starter. We'll see what's going to happen there. But when you look around the NFC, who would you really put in the top five, right? Are you going to put a Miles Sanders on, on the Panthers? There's really no one in Arizona. Do you believe in Cam Akers on the Rams? I don't. Uh, Washington, Tampa doesn't have a running back. Atlanta uses a running back by committee. Um, Kamara from the Saints, I'm surprised that he was left off. Maybe he was number six because he has been banged up some. But a dual threat you know, receiver, much like a Barkley or a McCaffrey, if he can stay healthy. But I... I don't have huge issues with the top five, but after the top two, I think you can kind of see how the NFC running backs are, eh, you know, not, not that fantastic at tackle. Trent Williams was the top ranked tackle followed by Lane Johnson in Philly, Laramie Tunsil of the Texans, Andrew Thomas, nice bounce back year for the giants and Christian Darasaw from Minnesota. At some point, you know, Williams is what? 34 ish, maybe 35 this season. Father Time is going to catch up. Father Time always wins. But if we can get another good year or two out of Trent Williams, that would be huge for the open window that the 49ers are now in their Super Bowl window. Linebackers, Fred Warner is at the top, and we'll go through the top 10. Starting number two, Levante David of Tampa Bay, Demario Davis, New Orleans, Matt Milano of the Bills, Roquan Smith, Ravens, Shaq Leonard of the Colts, Bobby Wagner of Seattle, Dre Greenlaw, San Francisco, at 8, and then 9 and 10, Tremaine Edmonds and TJ Edwards of the Chicago Bears. So San Francisco with the only play, only team with two players in the top seven, deservedly so, um, and obviously one of the reasons, in addition to the D-line and corners, why they are a top three you know, defense you know, every year for the past several years. Corner, Charverius Ward in the NFC is rated the eighth best cornerback. 
Let's go through the top 10. Darius Slay of the Eagles, Jair Alexander of the Packers, Stephon Gilmore now of the Cowboys, Marcus Lattimore of the Saints, Trayvon Diggs of the Cowboys. Nice one-two punch there for Dallas. J.C. Horn of the Panthers, Jamel Dean of the Bucks, Traverius Ward, eighth, A.J. Terrell of the Falcons, and James Bradbury of the Eagles. So the NFC East representing with two top 10 corners each, Eagles and Cowboys. And those will be the top two teams in the NFC East this year. Wide receiver combo, Ayuk and Debo coming in fifth. And no problem really with these rankings. So the Dolphins of Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle first, Bengals, Jamar Chase and T. Higgins second, Eagles, A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith are third, Cowboys with C.D. Lamb and Brandon Cooks fourth, then you have Debo and Ayuk, Buccaneers, Evans and Godwin, then the Seahawks with Metcalf and Lockett, Chargers, Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, ninth, Michael Thomas and Chris Olave, 10th, the Jaguars with Calvin Ridley and Christian Kirk. So a couple things kind of jump out here. I'm fine with the, the, the Debo and Ayuk as the number five ranking. When I first initially saw that, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of high, no, given how much the Niners really don't throw the ball and the other weapons that they have on offense. But I can see in this listing five feeling about right now, Brandon cooks on the Cowboys teaming with CD lamb. If, Cooks can stay healthy, maybe. I, you know, if every, if those three are healthy, uh, plus Michael Gallup, they do have a nice three-wide receiver set, and then you do have Pollard catching some balls out of the backfield. Remains to be seen. Michael Thomas and Chris Olave, interesting at nine, because remember, this isn't the NFC, this is the entire NFL. Michael Thomas was basically injured all of last season. I know that because I drafted him late in fantasy football and he did as, as I was trying to get a steal and he stole a roster spot from me. Essentially, Chris Olave is a stud. Michael Thomas remains to be seen. And with the Jaguars, Calvin Ridley in the offseason traded from the Falcons after sus- serving a one game suspension for gambling and Christian Kirk, I, you know, again, r- remains to be seen. He missed a year. He was a stud before that. Trevor Lawrence is a stud also, and Christian Kirk had a really nice year. 10 maybe is high, but we'll see what kind of Calvin Ridley they're going to get. Um, second to last but not least, let's stay with wide receivers. Debo Samuel ranks as the number one wide receiver after the catch with 9.6 yards after each reception. Next is Ronald Moore of the Cardinals at 7.1 yards. Pretty big drop down. And finally, uh, Javon Hargrave and Eric Armstead are one of eight defensive tackle tandems per pro football focus in the league that both ranked in their top 32. So again, helping the interior pass rush, hopefully helping some run stoppage as well, but the Niners with playmakers at all three levels of the defense, D-line, linebacker, and cornerback. But that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Coming up in the plus section, we're talking NBA Finals. We are talking Little Mermaid, how it did in the second week across the Spider-Verse, how it did in its opening weekend, the death of a major Marvel character, and why I think silent auctions are stupid. Stay with us. It's plus time. All right. Welcome back. And the NBA finals kicked off end of last week. It is tied 1-1 after two interesting games in Denver. Game one was all Denver beating the Miami Heat 104-93. to Denver was up 17 points at the half. This game was never in doubt. Denver shot 50% from the field. Miami only 40%. Everything else statistically between rebounds, turnovers, three-point percentage was pretty even. Denver was just making shots. Uh, Nikola Jokic, all-star center for the Denver Nuggets, had 10 assists at the half, was facilitating like crazy, and Denver just ran away with the first game. And of course, everybody making Wild knee-jerk predictions. You know, Miami just hasn't played a team like this. Denver is too diverse. They have too many players that can score, etc. You know, this could be over in four or five. Slow down, everybody, because the Miami Heat still have Jimmy Butler. They still have Pat Riley. They still have a great head coach. 
and they wind up winning game two, 111 to 108. Now, Miami doesn't make it easy on themselves. They were down 15 points in the first half. They were down eight points to start the fourth, obviously winning by three. They outscored the Nuggets by 11 in the fourth quarter. Denver still outshot Miami percentage-wise, 52% to 49%. The difference being in the three-point shot, Miami hit nearly at a 50% clip, whereas Denver was at 39%. Miami had three fewer turnovers than the Nuggets, but also seven fewer rebounds. So just a weird stat line, I guess, which was symbolic of a three-point victory for either team. It happened to be Miami winning. Now, this game, uh, Nikola Jokic had 41 points. I think the first game he had mid-20s. And there was a lot of discussion between do you make Jokic a shooter and a scorer versus a passer? Which is which might have worked this game too since Miami won by three, but he was, a, he was more of a shooter than a scorer. He only had four assists in game two, but he scored 41 points. Let's say he had 12 assists and 26, 25 points. That's 16 points and eight more assists. That's the same number of points generally, unless you want to sprinkle in a couple of three pointers that he's assisting. So maybe the, yeah, maybe the Nuggets have three more points and the game is tied, etc. I don't know if there's a good scheme that Miami is going to beat uh, Denver as it pertains to Nikola Jokic. It, it is going to be a pick your poison. If Jokic is going to pass and facilitate upon getting an entry pass or something at the top of the key, Denver has to knock down open shots. They were not doing that early. Some of their players weren't even getting a lot of shots. Some only had eight shots all game. That's going to need to change. So I, I think it, you know, it's pick your poison with Jokic. If it's going to be assists, if it's going to be him scoring, I think mathematically it winds up being a wash. Miami has to just continue shooting in the in the mid to high 40s. Um, overall, mid to high 40s for three-point shots would be awesome as well. And isn't it amazing when you're watching NBA games now? How often teams pass up an open two look for even a contested three. Someone driving into the paint, beating their guy off the dribble. Instead of taking maybe a mid-range jumper or something from an el- from the elbow, they'll look to pass out for a farther, lower percentage shot, but it's a three-point shot. It's just amazing how much the game has changed really in the past 10 to 15 years. And again, you can thank... Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and the Golden State Warriors for doing that. So Miami was up five with under a minute to go. Bam Adebayo wound up hitting two free throws to go up five. Denver got a score to cut it. So a three, 111-108. Miami gets the ball back. Jimmy Butler. And I just I hate when when either teams are down two or three. Well, just to say two or they're up, how they settle for hero ball. Because again, I refuse to believe that the defensive team is playing such great defense that the play that the coach either drew up on the sidelines or they're trying to execute in the half court is not there. You're just always going to see the star player or the secondary star player play hero ball and take a difficult shot instead of attacking the basket. In a way, put it on the ref. Make him blow the whistle, or if you're a defensive player, choke on the whistle, but get to the line because a bucket would have sealed the game. Anything more than three points with around 10 seconds to go, the game is over. But no, Jimmy Butler settles for a step back three, misses. Denver gets the rebound. Nobody calls timeout. Denver doesn't. Miami doesn't. They let it play out. And again, not again, there was no intentional foul. So Jimmy Butler was essentially guarding the ball. I think it was past once. I think it was to Jamal Murray. And then Jamal Murray fainted dribbling in at the top of the key, took a step back three that missed. Miami got the rebound and they won. Why are you not fouling there? Is there some sort of gentleman's agreement in the NBA that when you're up three, you don't foul? It feels like it's statistically the best thing to do because remember now they could have fouled before the shot went off, maybe with around seven or eight seconds to go. You put the player on the line, they're down three. All the all the pressure is on that first 
free throw. Because if they miss, you have to hope to get a rebound, then kick it out for three and get a decent look to tie. If you make the first free throw, you can miss the second one intentionally. Hopefully you get a rebound and a putback to win. Teams do not intentionally foul as much as they should. It worked out for Miami. Jamal Murray got a pretty decent look. You know, Butler was there. It was somewhat contested, but got a pretty decent look. It should never come to that. The minute they come past half court, foul or foul away from the ball. I Just do something. Maybe if you foul away from the ball, it's going to be considered an intentional foul. But God, as long as they're in, not in a shooting motion and dribbling, slap the hell out of their hands. Make it hurt so when they go to the free throw line, they miss both. I I just still don't understand it. Pato for Miami. Game three is Wednesday in Miami. This is going to be a dogfight. I think they split again in Miami, and it goes back to Denver in game five, tied 2-2. Two to two. Really good, compelling NBA Finals. There may, again, I said before, there are teams that, that Adam Silver and the NBA probably didn't want there. But if you just... It, if this said Lakers and Celtics on the jersey, people would be all excited about the type of basketball that's being played. How scrappy one team is versus the favorite, the number one team, the number one seed. It's a shame it says Nuggets and Heat on the back of the jerseys. Although I will say, and I'll probably say this again on Thursday, recapping game three. If Denver has the chance to go home and win the series in game five, or it goes to seven, please, 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 NBA, Go back to their 80s jerseys where it had the the skyline of Denver and each skyscraper was, it almost looked like a Tetris type of background. The buildings or, or even, I don't know if the, there was mountains in it, were like different colors. Awesome jerseys. Would love to see those in the finals. Let's do something. Guys, whoever's listening, hit up NBA Twitter, hit up Albans, Adam Silver, anybody. Let's make that happen for at least game five, if not games five and seven, if it goes that long. So now transitioning from the NBA to movies. So Little Mermaid Watch, in its second weekend, it made $40.6 million, which is nothing to sneeze at, for a total cum domestically, North America, US, and Canada of $186 million, $327 million worldwide. Now, the opening weekend, I think at last week, I quoted at $118 million, which is true-ish, because that counted Memorial Day. But the, the true weekend is Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for which, or of which, The Little Mermaid grossed $95.5 million domestically. Across the Spider-Verse debuted this past weekend animated Sony picture, because they, they retained the rights to animated Spider-Man opened up to $120.5 million over the three day span, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and $208.6 million worldwide. So $25 million better than the Little Mermaid opening three day weekend. The original Into the Spider-Verse opened domestically, their opening weekend, $35.4 million. Now, this is the one of the anomalies, right? This, so I didn't realize five years ago Into the Spider-Verse came out. I can't believe it was that long. Took my older son to see, who I guess was six at the time. My younger son would have been three, so I don't think, I don't think he came with us. We are going to go see... The sequel, it's just a matter of when and a, you know, a matinee that isn't super packed. But Across the Spider-Verse is obviously going to rake in more than the original. Five years ago, I think there was great word of mouth on it. Um, I'm not, I think it might be on Disney+. Plus. I'm not a thousand percent sure, but it's been on like a TBS or a TNT a lot. Fantastic animation style. Won an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Phenomenally done. And I think fans people, adults, kids that have seen it from 2018 to, you know, before it came out in 2023, the fandom has grown given that 120.5 domestic opening weekend. In total, the original $190 million domestic, they're going to obliterate that. And a worldwide cum of $384 million, it's going to obliterate that as well. So, what does this mean about the Little Mermaid? Is race really the hurdle here? Is it really the issue? 
And if so, are we not in 2023 people where we shouldn't be seeing color or complaining about color as much as people do? The Little Mermaid at this rate, at $327 million worldwide, is not going to reach $1 billion worldwide like Aladdin did, like um, The Lion King did, and I am blanking out on the... Oh, Beauty and the Beast. It is not going to. And you can argue that The Little Mermaid of those four movies is probably the most beloved. And it's one of the movies, I mean, all of these movies appeal to kids, right? But something like The Little Mermaid appeals to girls more so than boys. Aladdin, even though there's a princess, kind of has both. Lion King appeals to both genders. Beauty and the Beast, you know, more so probably female. And young girls, young teenage age girls or a little bit younger is kind of what makes the world go around when it comes to music and movie and making money off of this stuff. Think back to like the early 2000s, right? Like NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys. This wasn't good music, but they were geared towards girls. And they were the ones buying the posters, the CDs. I don't, there was no iTunes at the time, right? They were the reason why they were as big as they were. They're the reason why movies, say like a Titanic or other movies that skew more female are as big as they are. Yes, this movie should appeal to the people that are now in their 30s and 40s or older that, say, grew up with The Little Mermaid, the animated feature, and loved it and can sing, you know, every musical number by heart. Why is this not tracking for a billion dollars? And the only reason that I can think of, because the main character, and I apologize if I'm going to say her name wrong, is it, is it, Halle Bailey is phenomenal, gives a phenomenal performance. The CGI creatures are phenomenal. It is a little long. I said this last podcast at about two hours and 15 minutes, two hours and 20 minutes. Got to shave a half hour off that. But again, I don't know if that means more or less people are going to see it. But the only thing that's left is race. And it still, guys, shouldn't be, and gals, shouldn't be on the table. Across the Spider-Verse, into the Spider-Verse, here's, here's a great a comparison. The main character is African-American. He's a person of color. Miles Morales was created by Marvel Comic Books as the first black Spider-Man. Now, just throwing out things here, right? It's a podcast. Is that the reason why it only did $190 million domestically for the original movie? And then as more people saw it or became accepting of it, I don't even believe what I'm saying here. I'm just giving theories, right? That people saw how good of a movie it was and the message and everything <coughs> that more, like it opened up to from 35.4 million to 120. What is that? That's 85 million more. And yes, there's like inflation involved a little bit. So let's say $70 million more, $75 million more in a five-year span. And not only that, Star Wars. And yes, the sequel trilogy is divisive for many reasons, but The Force Awakens, think about the three leads. The ultimate lead is a female. Daisy Ridley is Rey. And then the two co-stars, co or, or if you want to call it it's the big three, John Boyega, African-American, person of color, played Finn, Oscar Isaac, Spanish, I should know his actual ethnicity, but person of color, um was a star also playing Poe Dameron didn't matter. And I think in some ways, Kathleen Kennedy, you know, Luke president of Lucasfilm kind of knew that star Wars was bulletproof and wanted to go the, the diverse route and putting a female in the lead because it's star Wars. But again, if it sucked, it wouldn't have made nearly a billion dollars domestically. And I'm not saying the little mermaid sucks again, like the, the, Rotten Tomatoes scores is about hovering around a 70, right? But the audience scores are a 95. So the people that are seeing it are loving it, but not enough people or not as many people as we think. And certainly Disney thinks are seeing it. And it, it race cannot be the only issue. You know, there are other things out there. If it's the cost of going to the movies, if it's a time commitment, if it, if the movie's too long, kids are in activities. I don't know what, so I'm not going to pin it all on the race of the main character. 
But you better believe that does have something to do with it. And the fact that we're in mid-2023, that's sad. That's really sad. And I think Disney too, you don't need my, this isn't a go, you know, what's the phrase? Go woke, go broke. Disney's not going broke. And I'm sure Halle Bailey was the best actress for the part. But if you, if you, if the purpose of entertainment is obviously to entertain, but obviously make as much money as possible, then sadly, because of the country and the pervasive, I guess we'll just say racism that we live in, in this country, that Disney should maybe rethink any upcoming live action. I think they're, well, it's not Disney, but they're doing a live action remake of how to train your dragon. I think they're doing a live action of Wreck-It Ralph and there, or maybe not, there was, there was something else coming up. Maybe you don't change either the races or the genders of certain characters that have been established. I don't care. Let me be frankly clear on this. I don't care, but I'm also a level headed, logical person. And these are also movies that I'm not going to see. So I don't really care about hope. Haley Bailey got paid really well. And she makes great royalties off it. And everybody else that's in it, I want everyone to do well, even Disney, but Disney don't complain or don't make up excuses or any other Sony Warner brothers, anybody else that's going to complain about how much money a movie makes when you decide to rattle the cage a little bit. Even if you don't think you are, you are. And as much as I actually enjoyed the all-female Ghostbusters movie, and I actually think it's a more entertaining movie than Ghostbusters Afterlife, which came out, what was it, 2021? No one should wonder why or complain about why that movie did not make as much as it could or why that there was not a sequel. Because a lot of people out there, and I was a big Ghostbusters fan growing up. They weren't the end-all, be-all. But when you think Ghostbusters, you think of the four main characters. To have to, to, to do a remake and to basically say, hey, we're going to prove that it's going to work with all females. I liked it. But you have to you know, Disney and other production companies, you have to understand there are so many backwards people in this country and around the world, but let's just talk about the U.S., that they're not going to get over that. So if your goal is just to put out a good entertaining movie with whatever diverse cast you want to put in, fantastic. But do not ever bitch about how much it doesn't or doesn't make because you got entirely too many rednecks, entirely too many racists, and entirely too many people that have their priorities shot to shit. So let's stick with entertainment and fantasy. Amazing Spider-Man last week in issue 26 had, or we experienced, the death of Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan. And she was a character that was introduced in comic books about 10 years ago. The first Marvel Muslim superhero. And so popular that she had her own Disney Plus show that I can't believe debuted a year ago. It was last June. Crazy how quickly a year goes. Excuse me. And of course, there was backlash with that show, but I really liked it. <laughs> I re- for, what, for what you knew it was, you know, following a, a girl in high school that gains, you know, Extraordinary powers, super entertaining and well done. Just like She-Hulk knew what it was going into it. Super entertaining. Well done. Enjoyed both of them immensely. So, so let's just jump to like how, how the death happened. So Kamala Khan as Ms. Marvel died protecting Mary Jane from a bad guy who's trying to summon the powers of a God winds up stabbing Ms. Marvel, believing that he killed Mary Jane um, but she had shape-shifted into Mary Jane. Mary Jane was safe. Um, Ms. Marvel died instead. Now, of course, there's backlash. If there's going to be people complaining about anything in the world, they could find something to complain about. Of course, there's backlash. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But here's... I, I'm sure you're not going to read this Spider-Man run, so let me just kind of run it down for you. So this run of Spider-Man comics, 26 issues, about a year and a half in the making, the run from issue one starts with Peter and Mary Jane. They're kind of on the outs. They're hinting at something bad happening six months prior. 
And what that was, was they were together and they were brought to another dimension to fight someone who needed to kill Spider-Man to become a god. They wound up having, you know, some technology that's able to send them back to their home dimension. Since Mary Jane uh, knows that this god wants him, she wound up slapping it just on Spider-Man because it can only take one person on Peter Parker sends him back to the, their original home dimension and she stays in this alternate dimension. Peter Parker slash Spider-Man is able to return and try to save her, but four years have passed and Mary Jane and another character whose name is Paul now have two kids, which they kind of adopted. They found being hunted by this God. Spider-Man returns, realizes that it's been longer than he thinks they all return to their home reality, their home universe. The bad guy returns with them. They wind up fighting. Ms. Marvel joins the fight. The Fantastic Four joins the fight. Norman Osborn, who historically has been the Green Goblin, is good now. He joins. They all try to help in defeating this god. And ultimately, unfortunately, Ms. Marvel dies. Now, a lot of some of the complaints have to do with race or ethnicity. I'm, excuse me. You know, of course, they introduce a Muslim character. This isn't me talking, and they kill her off in 10 years. We all know she's coming back, guys. It's just a matter of when. She'll be back by the end of the year. So it's not to diminish her sacrifice by any means, but she's coming back. But as long as anybody has a Twitter handle or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, they'll find something to complain about. And the people that are complaining about what I'm about to say next are not wrong. Her death seemed very random. She did show up in an earlier episode of Amaz episode issue of Amazing Spider-Man because she wanted to get a job at Norman Osborn's lab, kind of going undercover to keep an eye on him. So that's how she knew this fight was happening. But a character that isn't a core part of the Spider-Man universe dying and Ms. Marvel dying not in her own book just felt very random. Like I, I have no, you know, attachment to Ms. Marvel aside from the, what was it? Six, eight episode Disney plus show that I watched. And I guess the couple episode issues of amazing Spider-Man that she was in, but it just seemed, I can't think of another word other than random. And I don't want to say that they could have picked a more important character to kill because that's wrong. I think for what Ms. Marvel represents and, and the ethnicity and, what she means to a lot of, you know, new comic readers, especially female, is very important. But I think someone in the Spider-Man universe would have been a much better choice. For example, in the Batman universe, Alfred was killed a couple years ago, and they haven't brought him back yet. I'm sure at some point they will, but to have Alfred die, and they've killed a Robin off before in the past, like they've, they've killed Batman off, they've brought him back. I just feel like the wrong character was killed to make it meaningful for a Spider-Man comic book line. But again, don't fear. No one stays dead in comic books, not even Superman. She'll be coming back. And last but not least, I want to talk about silent auctions. Now, I haven't specifically done this per se, but at my gym that I go to, they are conducting a silent auction. And they have tables lined up of all sports memorabilia, um, pictures, etc. signed. For example, Signed jerseys of Joe Montana, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Pele, a signed boxing glove from Mike Tyson. Ironically, the most expensive item in this silent auction was a framed photograph of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. They didn't sign the photograph, but they signed basically paper or something underneath it that has its own like kind of window cut out. And it includes a ticket from the impeachment proceedings or hearing that Bill Clinton had to go through. I didn't realize that there was like tickets to that event starting bid at $1,200. Ridiculous. I really wonder where's her dress. Where's Monica Lewinsky's dress that she saved Bill Clinton's quote unquote genetic material from when they had, she had a little fun with him under the desk in the oval office. I mean, is that bid worthy? It was spit worthy. Is it bid worthy? I, I, I don't know. I mean, that would go for more than $1,200. And I don't even know if it got destroyed after the whole evidence, et cetera. But I can't believe like it was almost comical to see that 
and someone did bid on it. The, the leading bid is $1,200. Now I use eBay a ton. I understand that in a lot of ways that's considered a silent auction as well, right? Like you have your username, something's up for bid. You bid on something and then you can see if you've been outbid. You get an email notification that you've been outbid and you can see who the high bidder is. You can see your bid history. I'm not, you know, I, I don't necessarily go in and see the entire, if you can see the entire bid history, what I've bid and other people as well. And I do understand, you know, if you go to a regular auction, it's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, with the micro machine guy talking real fast, like, can I get $10, $15, $20? And you raise essentially a ping pong paddle. And so you know who is bidding against you and how much they're bidding. And the way that this is done is <laughs> there's an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper next to each item that you can bid on. It's got the name of the item and it's got the starting bid. Then you put your name, your phone number, and what your bid is going to be. And obviously if you're going to keep bidding as you go farther down the page, the bids get higher and they might be in increments of $5, $10, $25, whatever it might be. Fine. couple things. I don't want to put my cell phone down for the public. Like there's no reason. I mean, I'm sure you can get it online if you're really, really searching. I don't need to volunteer that up. If you're going to actually have a silent auction, if, if you want to call it a silent auction, I don't know what you want to call this. Kind of call this a leave your cell phone and bid auction. Like, cause there's not, I don't know. There's nothing really silent about it in terms of who you are. Why not just have a piece of paper next to each item you're bidding on with an email address? And you go home, you send an email, you send a bid to that email and you could put your name, you could put your cell phone number down of how much you're going to bid on it. Then you have no idea. Then it's really silent. It's like, it's Helen Keller mute. No one's saying anything. You have no idea what anybody else is bidding. If you want to send more than one bid into the email, do that. Like, oh, I'm going to bid, you know, I'll bid $1,200 on that <laughs> Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton photo. Oh, you know what? I really, really want it. It's it's only a couple hours before this expires. I'm going to bid $1,350. Just, in, I want to snipe it. That's what they call in eBay. When people are bidding with maybe under 30 seconds to go, they're trying to snipe you out of, you know, winning the, the auction because they want to win it themselves. Totally fine. I, to me, that makes a lot more sense. Of course, people are idiots and you have to ensure a certain way where <clears throat> people are sending an email bidding on a certain item, but they'll, they'll send it to the wrong email address. They'll really be bidding on the Mike Tyson. They want to bid on the Mike Tyson glove, but they're bidding on the Pele jersey as well. And they, they maybe in the email, it has to say, when you send the email, you have to say, I am bidding on the Joe Montana jersey to, to confirm again, because people are idiots, what you're actually bidding on and your bid amount. I think that would just make it much more interesting. And again, I don't need to put down my cell number, my email address or anything like that. It's all private and silent. Yay. Now one last thing. It made me think of, I've been watching the office a ton. It's on uh free form quite a bit. It's on comedy central, basically almost every night from like five to either 11 PM or midnight. Such a funny show. Again, a show that cannot be made today, just given what they're, what they talk about and how sensitive people are. But there is an episode in one of the later seasons, might be the, either the eighth or ninth season, where everyone from the office goes to a fundraiser and there's a silent auction there. And Dwight Schrute, the obnoxious character with the glasses that owns a beet farm, doesn't understand what a silent auction is. He thinks as he's walking around and seeing the sheet of paper of what people are bidding on each item, he first star, it starts out with an item where he, he kind of knows the price and he thinks this is a, whoever guesses closest to the price wins and he's still bidding higher than the other people on the list. Then as he's walking across from table to table, he starts using his phone and looking up the prices of each item, basically nailing the price on the nose. But every time he puts a price down, it's the highest price on that list. So when they start announcing the winners of each item from this auction, he's cheering loudly because he thinks he's won each item for free. Not that he just put, he just bid 250 on a massage or however much on a crock pot. 
So once he realizes that he actually owes all this money, you, you see his face change and drop. Now his, his coworkers at the office are, are like started cheering. They're saying speech, speech, because they know he's financially screwed. And Dwight walks up there with the mic in his hand. He's giving a really weak thank you speech. He's looking down. You could tell that he wants to cry. And then he just drops the mic and runs out like that. He's never going to pay such a great show. Awkward humor at times, dry humor. It works so well that there's no laugh track. And I think the finale, which is broken up into two parts, is one of the one of the most well done finales because the entire show was being filmed for like a cable access. They were following everyone from the office as if it was a reality show. And the last season kind of goes into that reality show airing on on local access cable in the Scranton area. They kind of became pseudo celebrities and the last two episodes ends with um the entire cast of the office being asked like a QA in front of like a bunch of fans uh in like an auditorium and then uh Angela and Dwight wind up getting married also and Michael Steve Carell's character comes back. Such a really well done finale, but the show is just fantastic. The stupid silent auction at my gym made me think of Dwight's interpretation of a silent auction in the office. Funny episode, funny show. If you ever get a chance and you're looking for something to watch between like five and midnight, check out Comedy Central. But that concludes our 49ers M plus portion of the podcast for this week. I want to thank you if you've been listening this week or overall. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. It is a Monday, so we'll have some new, more 49er news to talk about as Tuesday and Wednesday are mandatory mini camps. Wednesday is game three of the NBA Finals in Miami, and the NHL Finals have started between, I think it's the Panthers and the Golden Knights, and I think the Vegas Knights are up one game to nil. So if you enjoy hockey, enjoy that as well. Stay happy, healthy, and safe the next couple days, and we will talk soon. Take care.